Chapter Five of Stories in Gray. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Stories in Gray by Barry Payne. Chapter Five: Burden's Tomb, Part Two. Three: The Confession of Miss Gilderay and of Mrs. Langley. The night seemed interminable. Sir Felix Burden, an old campaigner, slept well enough in his deck-chair, but all the others were restless. In the passage one candle burned. Its flame, absolutely motionless in the still and yellow air, was like a piece of burnished metal. At the farther end of the tomb, in the chambers where the woman slept, low voices could be heard at intervals all through the first hours of night. At five in the morning all was still. Mr. Agravine, who had tried a thousand positions, had found one in which he was able to sleep. Castle, who had stretched himself at full length on the sandy floor, lay with his face on one arm, breathing heavily. Suddenly Castle sprang to his feet. "'I want to get out of this!' he shouted wildly. "'I'm not going to die like a rat in a trap! Let me out! I've got money to spend, I tell you! I must get out!' Sir Felix Burden, awakened by the noise, sprang to his feet. He was rather angry. "'Hold your row,' he said. "'Do you want to wake everybody? "'If you start that screaming again, I'll gag you.' Castle collapsed. He sat on the floor with his head in his hands, rocking to and fro. "'Give me a drink, and I'll keep quiet,' he said. "'If I can't get out, give me a drink.' "'Oh, go and get what you want,' said Sir Felix contemptuously. Agravine, who had lighted his candle, watched the scene with grave and dispassionate eyes. Castle went off to the stores. They could hear him moving about there. Presently he returned with a cup and a bottle of whiskey. His exceedingly elaborate knife contained a corkscrew among other implements, and he drew the cork. "'Why don't you all join me?' he asked. "'Best thing you can do.' The other men refused, as briefly as possible." Castle poured the whiskey into the cup and began sipping it. "'This is doing me good,' he said. "'I was suffering from chill. That is what it was. Might happen to anybody. This is the finest thing on earth, taken medicinally.' Nobody paid any attention to him. For half an hour he went on sipping steadily. Then he drove the cork into the bottle with one blow of his fist and flung himself at full length on the sand again. A moment later he was snoring. Sir Felix and Mr. Agravine were both awake now. They glanced at him, and their eyes met. "'Yes,' said Agravine. "'I'm afraid he's a skunk. "'He was all right in the hotel, and all right on the boat. "'But this experience has tried him a little too high. "'What ought we to do?' Sir Felix shrugged his shoulders. "'I don't see that we can do anything. "'It's only a short time now, anyhow. "'I don't know if it's my fancy.' "'but the air here seems to me to be worse and closer already. "'If he wants to die like a hog, he must. "'Of course, if he gets noisy, we shall have to take some measures, "'but as long as the stuff makes him sleep, well, he's best asleep.' "'And then, for a while, they dozed fitfully. "'At seven o'clock they could hear sounds of movement at the further end of the tomb, "'and then Zoe Averill appeared at the entrance of the hall. "'She wore a long native robe of dark blue.' "'We're making some tea,' she said. "'Shall I bring you some?' 
That would be very kind of you, said Sir Felix. I hope you've slept. I slept very well indeed. I had a little room all by myself. But I think the other two did not sleep so well. Miss Gilderay looks very tired and worn out. Miss Gilderay and Mrs. Langley brought in the tea, but waited only for a moment and then went back to their own quarters. Hot tea, a wash in cold water, and a change of clothing refreshed the two men. They sat up and talked in low voices, while Castle still lay and snored. "'An experience like this,' said Agravine, "'makes one realize what an absolute fantastic and foolish thing property is. One begins to wonder why one ever attached any importance to it. As you know, I simply gave up my life to the acquisition of one form of property, beautiful things, pictures. How absolutely absurd! Nothing of it is any good to me now, and I cannot take it along with me. Here in this small, imprisoned society for a few hours we lose the sense of property altogether. I am wearing one of your shirts, Sir Felix. It doesn't seem to me to matter in the least whose shirt it is. I really hardly thanked you. Community of goods becomes quite easy when one knows that one will soon be dead. And, he added sardonically, becomes still easier when one man in the society finds all the goods, and the rest simply do the communing. Sir Felix laughed. He pointed with his foot to the prostrate castle. Shall we wake up the beggar? he said. And let him clean himself up a bit? No, said Agravine. The longer he sleeps, the better his nerves will be when he wakes. An hour later, Castle awoke of his own accord. He certainly did seem very much better. He was ashamed of himself and apologetic. Afraid I kicked up rather a row last night. Sorry. I suppose my nerves gave way. I shall be all right now that I've had a sleep. Oh, yes, said Sir Felix kindly. You'll be all right. You've missed some very good tea by your slumbers. I dare say they'll make some more for you. Thanks, said Castle. I don't want to trouble them. I'll wait till they join us. Meanwhile, he proceeded with his toilet, and accomplished the rather difficult task of cutting himself with a safety razor. Of his own accord, he washed the cups which had been used, and took them and the whiskey bottle back to the storeroom. There he found Zoe Averill and Miss Gilderay, and remained talking with them for a little time. Presently, the whole party gathered together again round the trussel table in the entrance hall of the tomb. The table was laid just as neatly and carefully as if it had really mattered. The woman had seen to that. Zoe Averill still wore the native robe. The other two were in their ordinary clothes. Castle was quite good-humoured at lunch and very talkative. It was fairly obvious that he was drinking too much. Suddenly, Miss Gilderay, who sat next to him, said in a low voice, I used to do that, too. Do what? I'll tell you. She raised her voice and addressed the others. I was just saying to Mr. Castle that I, too, have a confession which I might make. It does not seem to be fair that you, Sir Felix, and you, Mr. Castle, should tell the worst of yourselves, and that I should still let you believe the best of me. I don't want you to suppose, said Sir Felix, that there's the slightest compulsion upon you to say even one word. You mustn't feel bound to disclose anything. Down here, so near the end, disclosure is really very easy. You see, it does not matter any more. I shall not be mixing with other people. I have not got to pretend that I am almost without fault. The only thing I am afraid of is that you will laugh at me, or want to laugh at me. 
I've got no illusions about myself. I know that I am not pretty and never have been pretty. I am elderly, and it must seem absurd for me to speak of romance and love. I am sure, said Mr. Agravine, that we shall not want to laugh at you. No one ever wants to laugh at anything which is quite genuine. Here, here, said Castle, rapping noisily on the table. Miss Gilderay moistened her lips with the tip of her tongue, looked at them unflinchingly, and began to speak. My father was the vicar of a London church, which was, in its way, rather celebrated. The music was very good, the ritual was very ornate, and the sermons were very short. My father was a good musician, and a very fair man of the world. He understood business thoroughly, and the greater part of his income was derived from careful speculations. There was a stockbroker in his congregation, an old man called Baldwin, who thought very highly of my father, as indeed most people did, and he used to advise him. My father was very careful that the world in general should know nothing of these business transactions, but to me he always defended them. He said that there were many calls upon his charity, and that one could only give in proportion to one's income. If he made money in steel commons, then he had the more to give away. He reminded me that some of the apostles themselves got their living as fishermen. It did not seem to me the same thing at all, but I did not criticize him. I was too fond of him to be critical. I used to help my father a good deal, doing all his secretarial work for him. I would type out his sermon and his instructions to his broker all in the same morning. The choir of the church was, for the most part, paid, and paid by my father out of his own pocket. He said it was almost impossible to get good music except from professionals. But one day he came to me in a state of great delight. He had found a new and admirable singer, a tenor, who was willing to give his services for nothing. "'He's a gentleman,' said my father, and paused. "'Or almost,' he added. I laughed, and told him that I knew that kind. When I saw the new tenor, Henderson his name was, I still felt that I knew that kind. He had good looks of rather a common description. His eyes were too small, his face too fat. He was slightly under the average height, I should say. I was quite prepared to take no interest in him whatever. And then I heard him sing, and forgot the man in the voice. He had a real tenor, and his singing was perfectly true. Somehow it was impossible to hear it without believing that behind that voice there was a beautiful and noble temperament. As a matter of fact, I know now that this is one of the commonest of illusions. Music has its special beauty which is quite isolated. It does not imply any other beauty of any kind. But that was ten years ago. Every Sunday I heard that man sing. I do not think now that I fell in love with a man, but I fell in love with a voice and began to make inquiries about him, and found nothing very romantic. He was employed in an insurance office, and was doing very well. He was unmarried, and lived with his two sisters. One Sunday morning he had been taking the solo part in the anthem, and I suppose that I was more than usually impressed. At any rate, when I got home, I wrote a foolish letter and sent it to him. It was my belief that I had not committed myself in any way. I had given no address and put no signature. In case my handwriting should be recognized, I had typed the letter. Some weeks later my father thought he should take some notice of this Mr. Henderson, and told me to ask him to dinner. He came, and every minute I liked him less and less. In the drawing-room afterwards he got a chance to speak with me apart. 
"'You do all your father's typing for him, don't you?' he said. I assented. I had typed lists and notices for the use of the choir, which, of course, he would have seen. "'You ought to have a new letter F put on that machine,' he said. "'The top of it's gotten broken off. I notice these little things. I have noticed that broken F in everything that you have typed.' I did not lose my head. I said it was very likely that the machine was always open, and that it was my belief that one of the housemaids used it to type her love letters on. I said that I would have the F key put right, but that I could not make out how on earth he came to have noticed it. This was as good as I could do, but it did not deceive him, and I saw that it had not deceived him. Before the evening was over, I hated him far more than I had ever loved him. I spent a sleepless night in an agony of humiliation, and the next day I was tortured with neuralgia. That was the beginning of it. To relieve the pain of the neuralgia, for the first time in my life, I drank wine. Uh, look here, Miss Gilderay, said Sir Felix. We quite understand. You need not tell us the rest of it. Miss Gilderay smiled mournfully. I am not going to tell you the whole story. It is quite loathsome. I do not think that I could do it. It is the story of endless effort and endless failure. The thing became public at last, and my father had to leave that parish. He died a few months afterwards, and I suppose his death saved me. At any rate, I have been able to do the most difficult thing of all. I am not now what I once was, neither am I an abstainer. I drank a glass of wine at lunch just now. I shall drink another at dinner. But don't imagine that I am proud of my victory over myself. I could not be that, knowing as I do at what cost it was bought. Nor can it ever blot out of my mind the shame of so much previous defeat. I have spoken of it with a reason, though. She looked full at Mr. Castle. All right, all right, he said impatiently. All these things have a physiological explanation. Yes, said Mr. Agravain. And what explains the physiology? Mr. Castle glared and said nothing. Zoe Averill changed her place and now sat next to Miss Gilderay. It always seemed to me a pity, Mr. Agravain continued, that any convention which is entirely false should be generally accepted. That is the case of the convention that divides people into saints and sinners. There are no saints, and in a sense there are no sinners. We are human beings, defective, but with some goodness. If we could only get that to be recognized, if that were the general opinion of society, society would be all the better for it. I have often thought, Sir Felix said, that the case is very hard of a man who goes to prison once. What happens to him when he comes out? By most people he is not forgiven, and in the other cases forgiveness is patronage. Both are as bad as can be. And yet I don't see what other line is to be taken. To treat crime solely as a disease is more amicable than practical. I have no panacea, said Mr. Agravine. I can't make a new heaven and a new earth, but in my time I have often wished I could make a new earth. The fact of the case is, said Mrs. Langley, that one can't make any general rules at all. We can only deal with special cases as they arrive as intelligently and as humanely as possible. I see, said Mr. Castle, that you take a very superior standpoint, Mrs. Langley. You pose as a righteous person, who is to do her best for people like, well, like Miss Gilderay and myself. I do not pose at all, said Mrs. Langley. 
I was not thinking of how I should judge, but of how I should wish to be judged. If you want to know, I have already made my confession. Miss Gilderay has been a friend of mine for three years past. Last night I told her something that I had never told her or anybody else before. I am not going to tell you any more now, except that some time after my marriage I went through a week of madness. My punishment has been that I have had to be a coward, that I have had to join in the general combination against more than one woman, though I knew that they were little, if at all, more guilty than myself. You have made me face this shame before you men. Now, are you content? You know perfectly well that I had intended nothing of the kind. He moved away from the table and sat in the furthest corner of the hall with his back to the others. Presently he took a cigarette from his case and lit it. I say, said Sir Felix, just put that down, will you, and stick your heel on it. Mr. Castle scowled, but did as he was told. The others rose and began to clear away the things on the table. 4. The Confession of Mr. Agravine and the Story of Miss Averill, and so to a conclusion. The three women spent most of the afternoon in their own quarters. In the hall, Mr. Agravine, with his pocket knife in his hands, sat and carved a peach stone. He was astonishingly clever at work of that kind. Sir Felix wrote with the writing block on his knee. If, as seemed likely, their bodies were ultimately dug out, he wished to leave behind him some instructions with reference to his property, and also with reference to the excavation work which he had in hand. Castle did nothing but sit in sulky silence. At five o'clock Sir Felix looked at his watch. Agravine, he said, "'We've been shut up now for twenty-six hours. "'What do you think of it?' "'I think another twenty-two hours will see the end of it. "'Before that time we shall have to light the charcoal stove and finish quickly. "'Have you got it ready?' "'Not yet. "'Come along to the storeroom, and I'll show you how the thing works.' "'Castle followed the two men and stood watching them, his hands in his pockets. "'Once or twice he asked a brief question.' The visit to the storeroom gave him an opportunity to resume possession of the whiskey bottle. Before dinner time, he had finished it. The other two men remonstrated with him, but he said gloomily that a man condemned to death had the right to eat and drink what he liked. He refused to join the others at dinner. In truth, dinner had become a farce. Confinement and oppressive air had destroyed the appetite of all of them. Even their conversation was at first quite without animation. But presently, Miss Gilderay said, do you know what Zoe Averill has been telling us this afternoon? She says that she hears somebody coming. Don't laugh at me, said Zoe Averill. I'm quite sure. Sir Felix looked across at Mr. Agravine. Were they all of them going mad, then? I don't see the possibility of it, said Sir Felix. Suddenly, from his corner, Mr. Castle burst into a loud laugh. What else did you expect? he shouted. It's the high priest come back to see the Christians who have defied his tomb. "'and to watch their last agony.' "'I think,' said Mr. Agravine, "'that you would do better to be quiet, Mr. Castle.' "'Castle growled that in future he would do what he liked. "'The question rather is,' said Miss Gilderay, "'if we want anybody to come. "'I mean, if we want to be rescued. "'I don't think I do particularly. "'Life does not hold very much for a plain and unmarried woman of my age. "'And yet?' "'Yes,' said Mrs. Langley. "'And yet?' I know what you mean. Instinct is too strong for us. We thought we were sick of the world, but we would both go back to it if we could. I also, said Sir Felix. Not me, 
shouted Castle. Not me. I would go back alone, but not with the rest of you. You all know too much. One would never be safe. At least you think you know too much. That story I told you was make-up to draw you all on. Idiots! Fools! Sir Felix stood up. Get out of this, Mr. Castle. We cannot have you with us. Castle did not move till Sir Felix was quite near him. Then he rose and lurched out of the hall and down the passage, flinging himself into one of the chambers at the side. They went back to the point at which he had interrupted them. Personally, said Mr. Agravine, I think I should be contented either way. The effect of being buried alive for a few hours has been to show me that the whole of my life has been a mistake. I have been a collector, as you know. True, I have collected beautiful things. That makes no difference. Property has been my master. Property has made me do base and degrading things. Of one thing I am certain. If by any chance Miss Averill were right, and we were rescued, I would change my way of life. My pictures should go to the nation. I would be the slave of property no longer. I don't think I quite understand, said Mrs. Langley, what you mean by that. I shall tell you. It can hardly be called a confession. It is really too paltry for that. I was hypnotized, fascinated, by the collector's mania, and that drove me into stupidities. Still, said Mrs. Langley, tell us. It will make the time pass. I suppose, said Mr. Agravine, that it is not the love of beautiful things which degrades. I hope not, for I have always had that love. Degradation comes not from love, but from possession, and that applies to more things than pictures. Until quite recently I was not a wealthy man. All that I could possibly spare was spent in the acquisition of what might be called stagnant capital. The possession of a thousand-pound picture costs a man forty pounds a year, whether he knows it or whether he does not. I was frequently hard-pressed for money. I was frequently tortured by being compelled to relinquish some purchase on which I had set my heart. Such things do one no good. Again, I have not been a picture-dealer in the accepted sense of the word, but I have often sold one beautiful thing in order to acquire something which I thought more beautiful. I made the greatest profit that I possibly could. I brought commerce very near to a swindle. One instance particularly lingers in my memory. It was a thing which I did quite deliberately, and it now seems to me both cruel and absurd to have done it. A friend of mine told me that he knew an old Frenchman living in Eastbourne who wished to dispose of a picture. He knew nothing of its history, but believed it to be good. He wanted an expert opinion upon it, and I was an expert. To oblige my friend, I went down to Eastbourne one Saturday to see this Frenchman. Jean Vier, his name was. Jean Vier was a bachelor living in a small house, with just sufficient income of his own. In all matters of art, I soon found that he was absolutely ignorant, but nonetheless he had from time to time bought pictures, some twenty of them. He brought out his great prize, the picture which he believed to be good, and I was able to tell him at once whereabouts in the National Gallery he would be able to find the original of which it was rather a poor copy. But among the twenty there was one other picture which I saw at once I should have to buy. I spoke to him about it. It was sold to me, he said, he spoke admirable English, as being, in all probability, by Corot. I laughed, and told him that a great many pictures were sold in that way, and that if Corot had lived to be a hundred years, and painted every minute of his time, he could not have covered all the canvases which have since been assigned to him. All the same, that picture was a genuine and very fine Corot, and I knew it. 
I gave ten pounds for it, said Jean Vier, and I would not take less than twenty. I told him that a hundred percent seemed rather a large profit to expect, but after a certain amount of grumbling I wrote him a check for twenty and took the picture back to town with me. It is one of the best things in my collection, and it is worth a very large sum, and I am heartily ashamed of it. But, said Miss Gilderay, is there, after all, anything dishonest about it? If the people who are ignorant try to do business with the people who are expert, has not the expert got the right to profit by it? It ought not to mean that he should buy a fine caro for twenty pounds. Do you still hear someone coming, Miss Averill? For I assure you that if we are ever released, Jean Vier shall have his picture back. Well, said Sir Felix, we have all told our stories now, except Miss Averill, and she is too young to have any story to tell. I have done good things, and bad things, but nothing very good or very bad, said Zoe. And yet, said Sir Felix, you said you were not sorry that this had happened, and that your life was to come to an end. That is true, but it is the future, and not the past, from which I was eager to escape. I will tell you just a little thing, a scrap of family history. My parents died when I was a child, and one of my earliest recollections is that I was rather proud of my hair, because an artist had admired it, and had asked to paint me, and that my mother told me not to be proud of it and that if I knew, it would be a cause of grief to me. I did not know. She was speaking of a tradition which had been in our family for six generations. It was only a year ago that in some papers of my father's I came upon the story. From time to time during the last six generations, a girl had been born in the Averill family with hair like mine, and in every case she had come to disaster. In most of the cases recorded, she had died insane. During their lifetime, my father and mother had said nothing of this to me, and I believed that, if my father had not died so suddenly, he would have destroyed those papers in order to spare me. Ever since I read them, I have been haunted, for it is true that I am not quite normal. Every now and then, not at my own wish, and often to no serious purpose, I have had what Mrs. Langley calls that special sense. I have seen things that were happening far away. It's a pity, because I love life. And if we are rescued, said Mr. Agravine, what is to be, is to be. If I had meant to take my life, I should have done so a year ago. If I am rescued, I shall go back and beat whatever fate has got for me. And I think we shall be rescued, for now I hear far more distinctly the sound of people coming. Listen, can you not all hear it? For a moment all held their breath. There was a tense, deep silence. And then suddenly Mr. Agravine rose and put his ear to the wall. It is so, he said. Come here, Burden, and listen. Sir Felix listened for a moment. There can be no mistake about it. That is the sound of picks. There are many of them at work. In a few hours now they should get through to us. Wouldn't it be a good thing if I went and told Mr. Castle? said Zoe Averill. I think it was he who most wanted to get back to the world again. No, said Sir Felix, don't do that. I will go and tell him myself. He went, and in a few moments returned. He said nothing until Miss Gilderay questioned him. Yes, he said. I told him. Hasn't that made any difference? asked Mrs. Langley. What did he say? He says that the spirit of the high priest is in him, and that this is his tomb. Nothing else. Mad, of course. But he is perfectly quiet. 
he will probably recover when he gets out of this. The women had a feeling that their rescuers should find them ready, and that everything should be in order. Helped by Sir Felix and Mr. Agravine, they cleared the table out of the hall altogether. In the chamber where he lay, they could hear Mr. Castle breathing heavily, as though asleep. About an hour later, as Sir Felix and Mr. Agravine sat listening to the sound of the picks, the women entered. Mrs. Langley was drawing on her gloves and carried her camera. Zoe had changed into her own clothes again. Miss Gilderay had rearranged her hair. They were all quite ready. "'This is good of you,' said Sir Felix. "'It will be much pleasanter if we five all wait together. There is only another hour or two now. Listen.' They could hear the blows of the picks. They sat down, and for a time talked a little, wondering who had organized the rescue and how it had been accomplished. And presently, because the air was very heavy, and they had been short of sleep the night before, and a great strain had been taken off their minds, they became drowsy. "'I believe I am going to sleep,' said Miss Gilderay, leaning back in her deck chair. "'I, too,' said Sir Felix. "'Why not? It will help pass the time of waiting.' Soon they were so soundly asleep that they did not hear the stealthy footsteps from the adjoining chamber. Silent and barefooted, carrying the glowing charcoal stove in his hands, Castle crept into the storeroom. With deep breaths he drew in the poison. He turned to tear down the curtain that filled the entrance to the room, in order that the fumes might spread and all might die together. But before he could reach it he swayed and fell, and lay motionless. And now the picks broke through into the entrance hall of the tomb. Through the opening streamed in a glorious sunlight that made the candle flames pale and fresh, untainted air. And with these came fresh life and fresh courage to face it, for all save that dead boy lying behind the curtain by the charcoal stove. End of chapter 5 Recording by Todd